So I'm here with one of our newest HEP heroes, he's Tillman Ruff. Tillman is an associate professor at the Nossel Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne. And for over 20 years, he's been the international medical advisor for the Australian Red Cross. Welcome, Tillman. Thanks very much, Matt. I know that you've had some uh, other news recently, which is probably a little bit more um, noteworthy than being a HEP hero, Nobel Prize. Yes, yes, this is the first uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, cooked in Australia. We've had Australians recognised previously in Nobel Prizes for for physics and, and medicine and, and we in fact have the only father-son duo awarded a Nobel, Peace, uh, Nobel Prize for physics in the 1920s. Um, but this is the first Nobel Peace Prize which I guess is widely seen as the greatest sort of global um, recognition for work to try and promote global peace and security. So, so it's very exciting and it was awarded to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons which was established in Melbourne just over a a decade ago by a handful of us, you know, sitting around kitchen tables. Um, so it's extraordinarily humbling and wonderful for us to have this recognition and the attention it brings to the, you know, the crucial global health imperative to eradicate nuclear weapons, um, which has had an enormous success this year with the adoption of the first treaty that formally will prohibit nuclear weapons once it enters into force, uh, which was supported by over 122 states. Um, at the United Nations in July. So, and What was your role in founding that um, campaign, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, you know, 10 years ago? What was your actual... I know you were the co-chair or the, the, the chair of the... Uh, well, the idea for the campaign came from two sort of diverse threads. One was the intense frustration and dismay in 2005 that disarmament was going nowhere, the non-proliferation treaty review conference that happens every five years. You know, hundreds of diplomats meeting for a month agreed nothing. The World Summit, the largest meeting of heads of state a couple of months later, agreed nothing about disarmament. You know, there was really intense despair that nuclear disarmament was stuck. And at the same time, we had this extraordinary inspiration of a civil society initiative, the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, that was built on a global campaign coalition model. So don't establish new organisations you know, big complicated membership-based beasts link together the existing organisations and have a coordinated approach, people singing off the same hymn sheet, working strategically together with governments, international partners, Red Cross, and they got a treaty over the line to ban landmines, despite, importantly, the opposition of the major users and producers and the bigger states. Russia, US, China still haven't signed that treaty but have been profoundly influenced by it and in virtual compliance with it in a number of respects. So we, learnt, we saw the power of treaties, we saw the power of, of a civil society coalition. So it was actually a distinguished Malaysian obstetrician colleague, Dr Ron McCoy, who suggested in late 2005, hey, we need an international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and we should get working on that. And there were a group of us in the Medical Association for Prevention of, of War in Australia who thought that sounded like a a really timely, prophetic idea, uh, we could help with that. So we essentially put together the plan, um, the basic principles about how such ca a campaign might be organised and work, um, put, pitched it to some funders, um, were able to garner some initial funds to, to do some serious work and employ uh, people, you know, workshop it, the idea around the world with colleagues in Europe in particular. Um, and then be in a position to launch the campaign in Australia by former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser and 
Christy Weir Mantry, former judge, in fact the former vice president of the International Court of Justice, the highest legal court in the world when it gave its advisory opinion on nuclear weapons, and then launched it internationally in, in, in uh, Vienna a couple of months later. So it was that initial legwork uh, uh, of getting the people, the ideas, the money, the staff together um, that I've really played a, a role, significant yeah, role in it. It's been really my life for you know the last 35 years, but the last uh, 12 years, you know, I've lived, breathed, as my family can vouch, uh, lived and breathed. I can uh, pretty much every day. So, so it's enormously exciting to have this initiative that started in Melbourne, you know, meet such a need and obviously be the right thing at the right time to be able to make a real difference. Isn't it fascinating that we have so many um, world influential ideas popping up from Melbourne? I mean, I know this sounds a little bit of a, a stretch, but, you know, look at WikiLeaks, for example, Julian Assange. I mean, he's a um, kind of partially Melbourne boy. Um, and having a huge role in, in international politics at the moment, and the way that your organisation is is being reported and playing out in the international scene, being criticised in by the right and everything in America and other places, as well as being praised and lauded, shows that you know, we do actually have quite an influence, don't we, for a small country? Absolutely, and um, you know I think there's a very strong tradition in Melbourne. Uh, um, especially in public and global health. And if you look around, you know, the concentration of sort of biomedical expertise that's around the sort of Parkville Strip in particular from the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Research Institute, you know, through the vet school, the women's, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the Howard Florey and, and the, um, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institutes, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the University, Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, you know, there's all of this cluster of of extraordinary expertise and 10 World Health Organization collaborating centers um, in mental health, in prevention of blindness, in all sorts of interesting areas. So there's a real focus in, in Melbourne and I think we have a, you know, a generally very privileged environment. Um, most of us you know, have enough to eat and can spend our time thinking about things and have that burden of privilege and the responsibility that it, that it brings to to make a, you know, a, a global contribution, having been lucky enough to be born uh, in, a, in a privileged environment. And, uh, and I think there's a great culture in Melbourne uh, of multiculturalism. It's the most diverse of Australian cities. So if you count the people here as well as the diaspora, we've made very significant contributions, including in hepatitis. You know, the, the hepatitis A virus um, was, you know, Ian, Professor Ian Gus played a major role in its discovery and in the first vaccine. Um, the, the virus strain that's in the most widely used hepatitis A vaccine in the world comes from the stool of the father of where the whole family was admitted to Fairfield Hospital in the old days with viral hepatitis that they caught from eating shellfish caught in Port Phillip Bay. That's amazing. When was um, that? When did they get that? Uh, that was back in the 70s still. Um, and that virus is now the vaccine. So in all sorts of ways, um, the hepatitis B control, again, Ian Gust um, played a major role in once we had a safe and effective vaccine, really showing that it could be included and incorporated into immunisation programs, be accepted, be effective, um, could be delivered um, well in a variety of countries, proving that and getting it on the international agenda as the sort of next global vaccine added to the, to the schedule um, 
was an important achievement. Uh, you know, the laboratory expertise in understanding the virus, how it develops resistance, um, developing new drugs for treatments of, of um, hepatitis B and C uh, in other places as well, in Sydney and, and, and Brisbane and Adelaide, there have been key groups working on these issues. But um, but there is a, a large, a great history of of, um, of people in public health and the clinical side and in laboratory sciences collaborating together and really making making a difference um, around the world. When I um, was looking at your little profile as a new Hep hero for Hepatitis Victoria, that was the Friday. Um, on the morning that um, the announcement was made about the Nobel Peace Prize and with the organisation that you helped found uh, won it. And I remember saying to my colleague Melanie, God, this bloke is interesting. He'd be really interesting to talk to because I have an interesting history, nuclear weapons, etc. And I, I said to her, let's, let's do a podcast. And then that night I heard that the, the, the Nobel Peace Prize had been awarded to you. I thought, God, this doesn't make sense. This is almost like a dream come true. What, just briefly tell us what happened when you got the call or how did you hear about it about that actually getting the prize what did it feel like was it expected well i th- i hoped we had a good chance i mean logically um you, the the nobel committee hadn't awarded a prize f- for work in the disarmament field for quite some time um it's been a recurring theme of theirs as you know really trying to encourage um moves towards nuclear disarmament uh, and the ban treaty that was concluded in July at the United Nations by a vote of 122 to 1 is without doubt a historic development. And Who is the one? The one was, um, was the Netherlands, who opposed NATO member who, which hosts nuclear weapons, so not supportive of the treaty process, but forced to be there by public and parliamentary pressure. Mm. Um, there was one abstention too, which was mm. Singapore unfortunately. Um, and of course the nuclear armed and states that claimed to rely on nuclear weapons were not in the room. Um, they had they had basically boycotted the process. Um, but so there were over 300 nominations for the prize this year. It's a pretty hotly contested uh, field. So you don't ever want to get your hopes up too high. I had heard that uh, the Nobel Committee tended to call um, winners, uh, you know, just beforehand. So when the clock started ticking towards, you know, past the half hour to the announcement, I, I was increasingly thinking, no, this, no, not not this year. Um, they did call the secretary of the committee. Did call uh, our Geneva office uh, just a few minutes before and had to get off the phone just to go and help make the announcement. Um, and the office wasn't sure that it wasn't a hoax, actually. <laughs> so they didn't, and there was virtually no time. It was literally a couple of minutes before. So I learned about it through watching the, the webcast of the uh, Nobel Committee's announcement, um, the same as, same so as everybody else. And it felt like slow motion when she right. said international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. But basically by the time she'd got to international campaign, it was clear that that... That had to be us. It felt good. It felt really quite extraordinary. I mean, it's enormously humbling. Um, it's wonderful. Um, most importantly, because it gives encouragement to people. Uh, and it was nice that it was given to the campaign and not and recognised its nature as a global campaign. 
so not to particular individuals. So everybody that's worked for ICANN, all the hundreds of thousands of people around the world that have supported ICANN in a whole range of different ways and who've worked for nuclear weapons disarmament for decades should and can claim some credit for this prize and, and pause to celebrate for a moment. But more importantly, I think, is that it gives enormous attention to the importance of the issues, to the urgency of making progress at a time when you know, the, the danger is increasing, the, the level of sort of rhetoric and explicit threat to use nuclear weapons is frankly frightening. Um, and, and this is unfinished business, and the committee's uh, award you know, really draws attention to that cause. And I think, importantly too, it gives encouragement to the governments that have supported this treaty process um, to, to also feel encouraged and supported to want to now start the really hard work um, of actually getting to elimination now that we've actually established the international law and it soon will be an international law that nuclear weapons are not only immoral and unacceptable but illegal. But there's hard work still to be done and this will definitely boost and encourage uh, that work. That's right and it's uh, um, undeniable and unarguable that if there was a nuclear exchange, even a limited one in, in the uh, Korean Peninsula, on the Korean Peninsula, that hundreds of thousands, millions of people would die. Um, the fact is that with hepatitis, millions of people are dying every year, aren't they? And of course, and I, I, for me, this is all part of the the continuum, I guess, of 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 prevention, and and we have such extraordinary tools for prevention um, now, and. And so much good that can be done. Um, one of the things about nuclear weapons that, that's so painful is even if they're never used, even if we're lucky enough to escape um, and get rid of them before, before they're used again, um, the toll that they exact in health and environmental costs and long-term contamination um, is horrendous. And the global military budget annually is 1.78 almost trillion US dollars per annum. Nuclear weapons constitute roughly a hundred billion dollars at least of that. Um, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute did some sort of estimates as to what kind of levels of commitment, financial commitment, would be required to meet uh, to fulfil the sustainable development goals that all governments have signed on to that are really the major, you know, and a really important sort of aspirational targets that the world has agreed to for how, how to achieve health, peace and, 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 and greater equity around the world. The health goals of part of the SDGs, the financial commitment required is around 5 or 6% of the total global military expenditure. So. The spending on nuclear weapons alone would more than amply cover um, the health commitments in the SDGs. Frankly, disgusting. That sort of, you know, resource allocation, yes. m you know, mispriority for destructive purposes compared with what can be achieved with rel at relatively low cost. Um, by measures like immunisation and and access to to universal universal and effective access to treatments that that work, uh, that you know we now have had this revolution in what's possible for hepatitis C control and treatment, um, and hopefully we'll soon make major strides in similarly in hepatitis B. Um, but even for hepatitis B, it's taken 
you know, it's taken a long time to get this vaccine effectively implemented. There are still um, tens of millions of kids around the world who are born every year who are not getting hepatitis B vaccine in a timely fashion. The birth dose and then the follow-up doses to ensure protection against not only transmission from their mother at time of birth, but through those early that early period of childhood when they're most vulnerable to, if they become infected, to, to becoming um, to having long-term infections. That, that is are it purely cost? Is it a cost issue? It's not just cost. It's organisation, training, policy, leadership, support. Um, it's health systems. It's it's supporting health workers. It's a whole raft of things. But basically, it's about commitment and resources and leadership um, at all levels. Uh, of society and government, and and the resources part is not, not not trivial, um, but so the good that can be achieved for a tiny fraction of the sums that are wasted on purpose that only bring us into danger is is just such a stark contrast for me that um, you know it, it hits me in the face every time I think about um, nuclear weapons and and hepatitis B. They're essentially both preventable. Mm. Uh, nuclear war is totally preventable, of course, and and for both of them, there are feasible tools to eradicate the problem: nuclear you're weapons and the virus. That's right. And you're a hero of your work in in hepatitis B. Um, how can we get this message out in a way that actually gets governments to listen? I mean, a million people, more than a million people, died of hepatitis and liver-related diseases last year in in the world. Six people die in Victoria every week, mm. which is more than the toll. How can we get people to listen to this, do you think? I think there are no easy answers, and it's, uh, but it does require continued effort and commitment that we need to keep up, um, bringing the evidence to decision makers and the public, having affected people speak up. Um, having support organisations like Hepatitis Victoria that, that can educate the public, support affected people, work on the policy level um, with governments, local, state and, and, and federal with other national partners, um, play a crucial, a crucial role. Um, in part, I think this, this problem has been hidden because it's a it's not one thing. There are different hepatitis viruses. They're transmitted in different ways. Often the link between infection and the sequelae is not direct or very dis, you know, happens over very long time frames. Many of the groups at particular risk have either been people from communities of high, um, with higher rates of prevalence who tend to be recent immigrants and not generally particularly articulate or effective at, at um, you know, drawing attention to their needs uh, or marginalised or stigmatised groups like injecting drug users and, um, and so forth. So, so that's a problem here too. Australia has done extraordinarily well um, in global terms in its response to the HIV pandemic by working with affected communities, by having evidence-based policies and by focusing on harm reduction, on what works not so much on ideology. We've been relatively free of, of the sort of ideological baggage that has constrained effective harm prevention and public health measures in many other settings, particularly for, you know, for more marginalised groups. We've done pretty well in the HIV epidemic and there's a lot of the same lessons that we really need to apply um, in the hepatitis space, um, linking together the evidence, um, the experts, 
the affected people and, and advocacy, education and, and policy work. As a hip hero, um, how did it, I know it's different from getting a Nobel Prize, when you heard you were going to be a hip hero, how did you feel? I felt very chuffed and very pleased to be invited um, to, to, to have that, have that honour. You know, as you get on, uh, start to get on in years and grandchildren start to appear, um, one of the things that I really enjoy is, is being able to sort of pass on. And, you know, over the years you do accumulate a few tricks, you do, you do learn a bit and being able to share that and, and, and to have the sense that that's valued by others, that experience is, is always uh, encouraging and, and uh, wants, helps to make you want to keep, keep going and get up in the morning. One couple of just final questions. So with the new drugs, the direct uh, antivirals, um, what do you see in the next few years for hepatitis and its the potential um, for solving this, this uh, health crisis? Well, for hepatitis C, I think we've, it's really access um, that um, is, is going to be crucial, so funding, support, training, uh, and I think we're doing pretty well. I'm not directly involved so much in that sphere myself. I've been more focused in the immunisation uh, space, but, but um, and new drugs keep coming. Um, I think the prospects for us essentially being able to, to solve the hepatitis C problem are, are really within sight. Of course, those people who, who already have established liver disease, you know, there's only a a certain extent to which you know that damage unfortunately can't all be undone uh, by therapy and that's why it's it's particularly important that people get a diagnosis and get on to you know consideration of treatment in a timely in a timely way um, um, for hepatitis b it's 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 going to be a longer a longer road um, the vaccine has been spectacularly successful particularly once high levels have been of coverage of the vaccine have been reached, um, then there seems to be this substantial sort of herd effect, this community protection or community immunity. That once you um, achieve a certain level of coverage, then there's just so much less circulation of the virus that the effect of immunisation seems to be much greater than expected. Um, and we've seen some absolutely spectacular successes in the region, um, and particularly in China. Um, which is obviously a huge population and, and really more hepatitis B infected people than any other place on earth. Um, an immunisation program that's really only effectively reaching um, all Chinese people wherever they live over the last decade and a half um, that has reduced rates of infection in young children from around 8 to 10% to now well under half a percent. Um, you know, in a decade and a half. That's a spectacular achievement. So with the addition of, and the drugs are not just treatment in the normal sense, but it's also about using the drugs effectively to, to mop up, if you like, that last hard part of mother-to-infant transmission that, that sees the particularly high risk of children becoming infected over the long term um, with combinations of vaccine, immunoglobulin and um, and drugs so 
the drugs will be used in a, in a variety of ways and also serve an important prevention purpose. Obviously, if you treat people effectively, they don't become you know they become non-infectious for others too. Um, so both the vaccination side of things and the treatment side of things come together in a number of synergistic ways, um, which I think is particularly, uh, which will be particularly important for hepatitis B. So you're optimistic about the future for hepatitis with the drugs and with, I guess, with more work in combating stigma and, and, and access? Absolutely, yeah. This, this is essentially a solvable problem. And, and we know now you know which are the viruses that are really responsible for the for the main global burden of disease and and the progress of recent decades has been patchy but spectacular now and um, and we really have some wonderful tools now to to be able to to really knock this on the head pretty solidly perhaps you'll even get a nobel prize for your work in hepatitis hopefully <laughs> I think others may deserve that more than I, but it would be a very fitting area for the Nobel Committee uh, to draw attention to, and there have certainly been some very spectacular achievements. Definitely. Any other things you'd like to say, Tillman, about what we're discussing today, I might add? No, I think that's covers it. No, anyway. Covers a pretty broad sweep. Anyway, thank you very much. And will you be going to... Um, Oslo to pick up the Most prize. definitely. When's that? It's in January, right? Yeah, no, it's on the 10th of December. It's the formal award ceremony, but, but the Nobel Prize, this, the Peace Prize is the only one that's awarded in Oslo, the others mm. in Stockholm. Um, so it virtually takes over. The whole Nobel show mm. takes over central Oslo for a couple of days. So there's press conferences, there's public forums, there's a concert, there's a torchlight procession, there's banquets and parties and dinners and and all sorts of events that civil society will organize uh, as well as the official ones and there's lots of sort of formal meetings with the royal family and what foreign you? minister prime minister head of foreign affairs committee etc um, will you be able to bring the the gong back here or i'm hoping very much that we may be able to <laughs> bring uh, at least uh, if not the original then one of the uh, the replicas that we're able to to ask for. Um, I think it should be housed in Melbourne in a publicly visible way to to honour and celebrate uh, that this was born in Melbourne. And I've, the one thing I would particularly want to add um, is the important role that that Indigenous people and test survivors, nuclear test survivors, have played uh, in our campaign. In we can, as a physician, I can talk about the public health evidence about the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. I can talk about the impossibility of any effective humanitarian response and I can present that compelling evidence about the climate impacts of even a relatively small regional nuclear war that would cause starvation on a scale globally that is totally unprecedented. But nuclear weapons can often seem these very distant, very big, very abstract, too big to handle or kind of a problem that's been solved. Um, not something that people necessarily feel a lot of agency about. And one of the most important ways to break through that sort of denial and obfuscation or, or paralysis is is the lived human experience, the stories of people for whom nuclear weapons are not you know an abstract international chess game or not about sort of 
concepts of deterrence and parity and balance and you know, the myth and magic about the weapons that we're supposed to have so that, that we don't use them. Um, but what they actually mean in terms of suffering, in terms of transgenerational impacts, in terms of ill health and displacement. Um, people who can really sp speak to that experience, um, that story out of their own daily experience and that of their families and communities. We've, one of the really important things I did, uh, that I think we did was um, ensuring that those voices were present at every single one of the negotiating sessions and the United Nations meeting leading up to this. Um, you could hear a pin drop whenever those people spoke and many of the diplomats really visibly touched by the strength and power of that testimony. Uh, this treaty is the first one that has explicit reference to the disproportionate impacts of nuclear weapons activities both on women and girls and on Indigenous people. Did you have any very surprising or unexpected reactions to the win? Overwhelmingly, it's been extraordinarily positive. Lots of people have shared their congratulations um, really very warmly, and, and I'm, a number of other ICANN um, board members have also been extremely chuffed by, by the level of recognition and really warm, grateful recognition. Almost everybody that I've been contacted by has, has expressed in some way their thanks for the work that ICANN does, which is enormously encouraging for me. My one disappointment is that the Australian government hasn't been able to be more generous. This is really a pretty big deal, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize for the first time for an organisation that was formed in Australia and, and yet they haven't managed to find the generosity to, you know, to go in any way out of their way to congratulate the organisation, even if they disagree with our purpose and they've certainly been one of the opponents of, of the Ban Treaty and haven't didn't join the negotiations and were quite active in their opposition to the steps that got us there. But at the same time, other governments that also don't currently support the Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty have congratulated us. The Foreign Minister of Germany, the Empress of Japan, um, the UN Secretary General, the African Union, multiple heads of state and foreign ministers around the world have found the generosity to congratulate ICANN, yet our own government um, hasn't specifically. So that's somewhat disappointing. Um, at this stage we haven't received direct personal congratulations either from the Prime Minister or the Leader of the Opposition. Um, there has however, thank, we're pleased that there's been a Senate motion um, that was moved by the Leader of the Greens and Senator Lisa Singh from Tasmania, Labor Senator from Tasmania, which recognised that ICANN was born in Melbourne, is now a large global coalition of almost 500 organisations in 100 plus countries, and that congratulating it on it, so being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017, which was passed in the Senate without objection. Well, so in a Victorian sense, that's... Did the Victorian um, congratulate? Premier Andrews uh, sent a very nice... Uh, social media message early on sort of saying good on you and see what we can do in in Victoria um, which was which was which was very nice um, it's it seems uh, amazingly small-minded of um, our Prime Minister and even the leader of opposition not to acknowledge publicly what has been achieved one would have imagined that there was no a decision made by their advisers not to say anything. You know, frankly, they're on the defensive, and, and their position of opposition to, to banning nuclear weapons um, 
is a contested one, and so I do take some comfort from the fact that that you know this is something that that they're on the defensive about. It's clear that the vast majority of Australians, um, consistently in opinion in reputable opinion polls, including one done just a couple of weeks ago, well over seventy percent of Australians want their government to support a treaty banning nuclear weapons. The Labor Party, to its credit, has in its national policy platform adopted in 2015 a statement of support for a treaty banning nuclear weapons. They've been, the leadership has been rather shy in sort of articulating that policy and making any specific commitments on the basis of it, but, but I think that's a very important basis for civil society pressure on government. This really should be a cross-cutting health and humanitarian issue. This shouldn't be a party political issue. It's something to do with uranium exports. I mean, we still uh, export uranium. Is I think it's. Up? I think it's a whole. Yes, there, there are things that are that are enmeshed here. Um, but the fundamental position that Australia has is that, even though it's not stated formally in any treaty or other commitment, that the United States would use nuclear weapons in Australia's defence, that we have this position that nuclear weapons play a central role in the security of Australia and indeed in its prosperity um, in the most recent defence white paper. So it frankly makes us, puts us on the wrong side of history. It's, mm. it's totally inconsistent because Australia has, is a member of all of the other treaties that prohibit and provide for the elimination of other inhumane and indiscriminate weapons, biological, chemical, cluster munitions, landmines, blinding laser weapons. We've signed up to all of those, and on some of them we were leaders, particularly the Chemical Weapons Convention. So it's, it's somewhat anomalous that for the worst weapons of all, the last category of weapon of mass destruction, by far the most destructive weapon ever invented, the only one that poses an existential threat to all humanity, we take a different position and we say either that a ban would be ineffective or that it you know, could actually be dangerous because it might undermine the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and that nuclear weapons should only be banned after they've been eliminated. The reality is that it puts us on the wrong side of history and it makes us part of the problem rather than the solution because if we say nuclear weapons are important for our security, well, on what legitimate credible, consistent basis can we argue that North Korea or Iran or anyone else shouldn't have nuclear weapons? If you follow that logic, then everybody should have a legitimate claim to acquire them. And it, it really undermines our credibility and it, and it means that in, in terms of playing a constructive role in disarmament, we're missing. These ban treaty negotiations were the first multilateral disarmament negotiations ever that Australia didn't join. That's not consistent with a nation that talks up its commitment to international law and a rules-based international order. Um, so I've no doubt that Australia will eventually sign this treaty, um, but it will take a lot more work by civil society to, um, to make that happen. I'm pleased that even though we only initiated this a few weeks ago, more than 60 federal Australian parliamentarians have signed a parliamentary appeal that commits them to, to work for Australia to join this treaty. And I'm particularly pleased that it includes such a broad political spectrum. It includes national and, and uh, liberal members. It includes people from the Xenophon team, from the Greens, from Labor. Um, so I think that's a useful development to try and show that, this, that there are people across the political spectrum who understand 
that the approach of stigmatizing banning and eliminating uh, unacceptable weapons is the path that's worked for every other category of weapon and should be applied to nuclear weapons as well. I guess there's also possibly the answer is that the letters in the post, but it's just got lost. You know how terrible the Australia Post is at the moment. <laughs> it's possible, Mark. <laughs> I doubt it. I'm still waiting, but it's now a couple of weeks later, so uh, uh, it's not looking good. That was Tillman Ruff, our latest hip hero and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. You can find out a lot more about what we do at Hepatitis Victoria and the services we offer by going to our website, which is hepvic.org.au. Thank you very much.